In the end, you've got two choices. You lie at the bottom of the hole, or you get up and you fight. I'm here because I really believe that this mine should not go ahead. We want to try to make sure that not another tree falls in this forest. The people that have been voted into power aren't taking responsibility. If they were taking responsibility, then we wouldn't have to. What has happened is that there's a great movement of people who now realise that by their own strength, they can do something about the environment in which they live. I wasn't up to it early on, but when I realised that I wasn't speaking for myself, I was speaking for the river, it became easier. I've lost contact with everybody. It's just horrific not being able to do anything to stop it. I think it's really easy to feel like you're alone. There's, like, nothing you can do. This huge semi-truck came onto us. This is just a fight that we have to win if we're to have a future for our families. You know, I'm nearly 80, for God's sake, you know, with grandchildren. This morning, been awoken by cops and loggers at the gate. They're going to have to come get us. We think that this place is worth taking a stand for. I'm not ever going to give up in this fight. I'm in this for the long haul. the trailer for Wild Things. Hello and welcome to the first Cinema Australia podcast for 2021. My name is Matthew Eels. In this episode I'm speaking with Sally Ingleton, one of Australia's most experienced documentary filmmakers and the director of the eye-opening new documentary Wild Things. Wild Things follows a new generation of environmental activists hell-bent on saving their futures from the ravages of climate change. Sally trained at the Swinburne Film and TV School in Melbourne and her first breakout documentary was The Tenth Dancer, which Sally discusses at the beginning of this podcast. Sally then embarked on actively producing social issues and nature documentaries for Global TV. Wild Things is Sally's first feature-length documentary. Wild Things is in cinemas from Feb 4, but head over to cinemaaustralia.com.au for a full list of cinemas showing the documentary as well as Q&A screenings. Anyway, enjoy. Sally, thank you very much for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. It's great to have you with us. Lovely to be here. Thanks, Matthew. Uh, I don't always get the opportunity to interview uh, documentary filmmakers, um, so this is, a, this is really exciting for me. I think the last documentary filmmaker I interviewed was Damon Gamo for, uh, for 2040. So, yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> Good. Well, I tell you what, there's a lot of us out there. That's right. Um, congratulations. Documentary is a very popular genre, and um, I'm not sure what the statistics are, but there must be well over, you know, a thousand documentary filmmakers in Australia. Probably yes. more. Yeah, and uh, producing some incredible work at the moment. Yes, that's right. 
Um, congratulations on Wild Things. It, uh, it really succeeds at getting its job done. Uh, I, I started watching it feeling quite calm and relaxed and, and open to going on this uh, journey with these people. And very quickly that calm turned to frustration and, and anger that we're still fighting for the protection of these areas after so many decades um, and that the government is still sitting on their hands when it comes to environmental activism. So, um, so congratulations again. Thanks very much, Matthew. Yeah. Well, that's definitely, you know, the intention behind making Wild Things was I wanted to initially make a film about Australia's, I suppose, history of the environment movement, you know, particularly around activism and the success that, um, you know, people's um, active protesting has actually achieved because so many wild places have been saved, you know, thanks to the efforts of protesters who, you know, literally laying down in front of bulldozers or who've climbed trees or who've, you know, protested about the building of new uranium mines or whatever. And it's such a rich legacy. And I, I suppose a lot of young people don't necessarily know much about that history. And they have this sense that, um, you know, previous generations have really stuffed things up and could have tried a lot harder <laughs> to save wild places. Whereas I think there has been definitely people who have always been out there, you know, trying to save wild places. And now that's more important than ever. Yes. Uh, so tell us a bit about yourself. What inspired you to get into documentary filmmaking? Initially, when I, I went to um, university and like many people, I did an arts degree and then I decided I'd become a teacher. Um, but before I started working as a teacher, I decided to do some travel. So I did do quite a lot of travel in the Southeast Asian region and, and in Europe. And when I, when I returned from those travels, I started working in community work and community education and I did that for a number of years and I suppose I was really trying to work at that kind of grassroots level and bring about social change mm. but I had a, a bit of a creative um, bent and I really wanted to see if I could put into practice my I guess commitment to social justice and put that into uh, some sort of creative form. Mm. And I started doing courses in, uh, in filmmaking and then did a, a, um, a postgraduate course in documentary filmmaking at what was then Swinburne Film and Television School and then which then became the Victorian College of the Arts. Mm. And it just took off from there. I really just started working, making a short half-hour documentaries for SBS on, on different cultures and, um, and then just started making long-form documentaries. Mm. A lot yeah. of my initial documentaries were very much set in the Asian region mm. and I suppose um, I, was, I was keen to sort of tell intimate stories about people that, or the lives of people that, most audiences would never get access to. And I suppose that's one of the great things with documentary is that, um, you know, they do open up, documentaries do open up worlds that most people don't know about. And, yes, you know, and it is really one of the wonderful advantages of, of documentaries is sort of access to these subcultures and unknown worlds and unknown stories. And, you know, what can be 
really satisfying is watching a documentary that just takes you into into a world that you would normally never know anything about and you yes. come away from that film feeling enriched by the experience mm. uh, you've since gone on to make uh, many documentaries as, as we've just mentioned and you've won numerous awards for your work what would you uh, say has been your proudest moment as a as a documentary filmmaker well, that's a, a hard question because they, you know, they all hold a special little place in your heart in a way. Um, I mean, the very first major documentary that I made was a film called The Tenth Dancer uh, that was about um, the Cambodian, the sort of survivors of Pol Pot who had been from the Royal Ballet in Cambodia. It was probably the first documentary that was made about the experience of Cambodian people during Pol Pot that was really told from the perspective of the Khmer people themselves. You know, it was all in Khmer language. And I formed a really strong uh, connection and bond with, um, with this group of dancers from the Royal Ballet, in particular a wonderful old lady that was, you know, really instrumental in saving um, that art form. And that film did incredibly well. It was, it was extremely hard to finance, but I was just very, very tenacious and um, really stuck at it and, and did eventually get pre-sales to the BBC and the ABC and a number of other channels around. What the world. was that one called again, sir? It was called The Tenth Dancer. The Tenth because nine out of ten of all the artists in the country were killed during the Pol Pot period. Yeah. And so in a way, this is the story of the 10th, you know, the wow. one who survived and, yeah. and really um, held the flame and, and kept, kept the flame of culture alive. And um, I'm still, you know, very close to those, those particular dancers and in touch with their families. And it's one of the great things about, about Facebook. Yes. One of the other films that I made that I'm also still very, very proud of is a, is a wonderful documentary called Seed Hunter. And that's a story about an Australian scientist called Dr. Ken Street, who was working in the Middle East at the time. And he would go out on these incredible adventures to like the ends of the earth, collecting these ancient seeds yeah. uh, for their, basically for their genetic diversity. And these seeds would get put into a seed bank because they were like these rep repositories of, you know, amazing traits that, you know, we might need in terms of breeding up food for the future that can help, you know, feed the world. Mm. And uh, that story, you know, it was a terrific film and that, that also did very well and, and won a lot of awards. And it was an amazing journey to go on because we travelled right, right into the sort of wilds of Tajikistan and Uzbekistan and, and into Russia and Armenia. And, and I spent a lot of time in Syria mm. before um, obviously everything went pear-shaped there. So that film is, um, is a pretty special one too. So here we are with uh, Wild Things. Uh, this isn't the first uh, documentary released in Australia about the environment and it certainly won't be the last. But what makes Wild Things different to other documentaries of its kind that have come before it? Look, I think probably one of the, uh, one of the special things about Wild Things is it is very contemporary. Mm. It tells the story of three sort of frontline campaigns over a year. So we follow people heavily involved in the frontline action on coal. So these are just everyday people who've just absolutely had enough and are determined to try and stop any new coal mines being built. And so they will stand, you know, for hours on end um, protesting um, and, you know, basically, uh, you know, trying to just really 
prolong the building, um, in particular, of the Adani coal mine, which is just this mega mine that if it does go ahead, is going to, you know, increase Australia's um, carbon emissions exponentially. Mm. Um, and that was a, you know, wonderful process following those people. We also follow a group of um, activists down in the forests of Tasmania, and these are these beautiful, ancient, pristine rainforests that are thousands of years old and with unique habitat and, um, and wildlife. And they're being cut down largely for specialty timbers like coffee tables, veneers, and most of it ends up, unfortunately, as wood chip. Mm. So um, you've got protesters that are very skilled at climbing trees and sitting in trees for days on end and basically going into these coops that are under, under the threat of being logged and just really standing in front of those trees and protecting them from, from being cut down. And the third uh, campaign that we follow are the young teenagers, the enthusiastic young teenagers that kick-started the school strike for climate movement uh, in Australia. And so we really weave between those three stories. And along the way, we tell the story of some of the really landmark um, campaigns, frontline campaigns of the past that have saved wild places in Australia. Yeah, uh, we'll get into those uh, those people in a moment. But uh, this is the first documentary uh, that you've made without the financial backing of a broadcaster. Is that right? Most of my work in my career has always been with the uh, help of a pre-sale to a broadcaster. So all the films have have largely gone on TV. Mm. And this is really the first time that I've made a film without a broadcaster. So all of the finance has come through a mix of screen agency funding and a lot of support through philanthropic groups and yes. private donors who just really believed in the story and in the project and really wanted to see a film made about frontline act activism, particularly mm. climate activism. Is it liberating for you to make the documentary without the attachment of a broadcaster or was it more of a challenge? Look, I wish I could say that it was liberating <laughs> to make a film without a broadcaster, but I've actually had really great experiences with broadcasters mm. and I've always got on extremely well with commissioning editors and I've always listened to what they've had to say and if, if we have a difference, I've argued my, my point strongly and, and usually I've always won. Mm. But um, I've always had really good experiences in making films with broadcasters. So um, the hard thing when you make a film without a broadcaster is it does take a lot longer to raise, to raise the finance yes. and, and certainly in the case of Wild Things, yeah. it did take quite a lot of, um, you know, time and effort and writing funding submissions and hitting up all my friends, you know, it was just, you know, a really difficult process because I, I don't really like asking people for money. <laughs> anyway, um, I sort of had to do it. And increasingly more and more documentary filmmakers now are finding that in order to tell the stories that they want to tell, they are having to raise the money privately. Yes. Um, so let's talk about these two uh, incredible young women who are at the heart of this documentary. Um, they're fascinating and passionate young environmentalists who have gone above and beyond really to raise uh, the awareness of climate change. It's, it's incredible. So can you tell us about uh, meeting these uh, young women for the first time or all these, you know, there, there's more than the young women. It was, a, it was an entire group of people. Well, look, probably, um, I mean, I think all of the people in the film have a, you know, have a presence, but probably the strongest 
presence is um, uh, an amazing woman called Dr. Lisa Searle, who's, who's a GP. She works as a GP down in, uh, in Tasmania, but she also does a lot of work for Medicines on Frontier. But she is a really committed forest defender. So she's extremely passionate about ensuring that no trees will fall under her watch. And she will spend months and months at a time in the Tasmanian forests, basically helping to galvanise um, volunteers and training volunteers into how to climb trees and really organising these um, these forest protests. And she's a really, really inspiring people. I mean, some of the people who've seen the film just say, oh, she should be Australian of the year. And yes. She's such an inspiring person. Yeah. And just no ego, just a really extraordinary uh, character. And she looks like um, a bit of a stereotype of, you know, she's got dreadlocks and so forth and she's a vegan but you know you dig deep and she's just such a thoughtful inspiring person that I think all those stereotypes of the hippie just you know get completely blown away when you realize what an extraordinary person she is you know very authentic and um, you know incredibly smart and clever and she really you know she's got enormous respect amongst all the volunteers there and I think a lot of the, the police and the emergency services who often have to get her down from the trees <laughs> really respect her as well. Um, and then the other people, the other uh, couple of women that are really uh, very, very inspiring are these young 14-year-old teenagers from yeah. Castlemaine, uh, which is a rural town in Victoria, who, you know, just really they heard about Greta Thunberg and her strikes for climate. And, and this is back in 2018, and they thought, hey, we could do that. Yeah. You know, let's start striking. And so they asked their parents, you know, we want to go on strike from school one day a week. And their parents were like, what do you mean you're going to strike from school? Can you strike from school? <laughs> and so they started, very, started off very, um, you know, just small numbers and they would sit outside their local MP's office or sit outside their local council office and slowly slowly they started um getting publicity and with the support of the Australian Youth Climate Coalition and an organization called Tipping Point yeah. uh they received training and then the movement just grew and grew and grew and um you know I'm sure a lot of the the listeners to this podcast you know will remember the amazing school strikes for climate yeah. that happened in towards the end of 2018 the first one was November the 30th 2018 and then the next one was March the 15th 2019 and then there was this huge big global strike on September the 20th mm. in 2019 that got over 7 million people from around the world marched for climate that day um, and there was an enormous momentum of people really pushing for climate action you know, right up until when the bushfires happened um, around this time last year in, in uh, December, January. Mm. Um, there was, I think it was just so heightened that everyone was thinking about, about climate and what can we do to ensure that we're taking all the precautions that we need to be taking. And, of course, it's just completely sort of fallen away um, because of the pandemic. Yes. And everyone now, you know, every time you turn on the news or you look at an 
news stream online, it's just all about the COVID numbers and the pandemic and that has just completely taken over as, as the issue of, of most concern, which is a little bit frustrating, but I think, you know, audiences, I think they know, I think people know that climate change is still happening. Yes. And um, if anything, what we can learn from the pandemic is how quickly it is possible to, to change our lives when we have to. Mm. Um, and I think there is a real lesson to be learned in actually, you know, spending more time locally. Um, and a lot of the, the, the travel that most people would normally have just done without thinking, people realise now that they don't have to travel as much as, as maybe they once did. Yes. And I think all those things will probably change the way we all live into the future. You're listening to the Cinema Australia podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud or at cinemaaustralia.com.au. How would you compare this new generation of environmental activists to previous generations? Look, I think the big change with environmental action now compared to, say, 30 or 40 years ago is technology. Mm. I mean, most activists have got, have got phones. They can live stream their actions. They can share um, photos. They can share campaigns. So suddenly they can get followers really, really quickly. And it also means that they don't feel alone. They might yes. be out there protesting, but they've got this huge following of people that are egging them on and supporting them. And it's a really good way of mobilising people too. If, they need, if you need people to come to an action, boom, you just get on Facebook or, um, you know, all the various, you know, different um, devices and, and programs, apps that you can use and, uh, and you can very quickly mobilise people. Um, I appreciated the uh, Indigenous story that was weaved into the narrative mm -hmm. of Wild Things, but it didn't get as much focus as the other stories that make up the film. So can you just tell us a bit about uh, your introduction to Ken Dodd and, uh, and let our listeners know more about uh, his story? So in Wild Things, we meet a wonderful elder from the Biri country, which is in central Queensland, and his name is uh, Ken Dodd. And he actually lives next door to the Camp Bimbi, which is the Stopadani campaign base. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got to meet Ken because he's like the traditional owner of that country. So I went to meet him and, and pay my respects. And I, uh, Ken Dodd is actually an artist. And so he's got a, a wonderful display of, of artwork. But it was really fascinating talking to him about the early days on, on his country, because that country now is, it's all coal mining. I mean, everywhere right throughout central Queensland is, is just an enormous number of, um, of coal mines. And this region is close to the Galilee Basin, which is where the Carmichael coal mine is, is set to be built. But it's like a, a little bit further, further north and further towards the coast. Um, and Ken tells this incredible story about what happened when his ancestors were basically just moved off that country and prospectors and uh, developers just moved into his country and just took the land. There were no, no deals, there was no native title, nothing, and they just um, started you know, digging for coal and setting up these coal mines as well as, you know, moving in vast amounts of cattle and using that country for, for growing um, livestock. Yes. And, of course, you know, a lot of 
a lot of damage has been done to the land up there and um, you know, there's a lot of erosion. And, and it's quite confronting to see him walking on these, uh, you mm. know, what, what were once beautiful rivers, now just uh, dry riverbeds. You know, it's, yeah, that's that right. It's quite confronting. Do you still yep. keep in touch with Ken? Yes, yeah, I sent him the film and I sent him the the um, uh, the, the sections that we wanted to include and I, I sent him the sections that we wanted to include of, of Ken talking so that he approved them and, he, yeah, he was really, really happy with them. I haven't seen Ken since we were filming but I hope to get back up there at some stage. Obviously movement is still very difficult because yes. every time you plan to go anywhere there's a border closing <laughs> or something right. at the moment. So it's a little bit frustrating but he was so, he's a wonderful guy. And for me because, you know, I've, I've made quite a, a lot of films uh, with Indigenous communities and I'm currently, um, you know, I spend a fair bit of time living in, in Darwin in the Northern Territory. So I suppose the Indigenous perspective is very important to me as long as it's done respectfully and, we make, you know, you make sure you have approvals for the content. Yes. Do you ever feel like your life is at risk making something like Wild Things? Look, making a film like Wild Things, I never felt personally under threat in any way at all. Um, I mean, I you know, it was interesting. One At one point someone who saw one of the early cuts of the film said, oh, you know, the, um, the protesters, uh, the, the police are very, are very um, polite. Yes. And I said, well, this is Australia. Like, you know, it's... Obviously, in other countries, environmental protesters and activists, they can be murdered. Yes. They can be put in jail yeah. and they can just disappear. And that has happened a lot around the world. Mm. Certainly in countries um, in South America, in Brazil, people campaigning to save the Amazon, people campaigning in Indonesia and Malaysia to save the forests there. A lot of those people just completely disappear. Mm. And um, fortunately, you know, we, we're not in that situation here. So I feel, you know, very, very lucky that I can make a film like this yeah. without the threat of, of, of being um, kidnapped or whatever and taken away. Mm, the okay. timber industry in Tasmania has um, been very critical of the film and wondered how on earth uh, I got the money to make the film. Mm -hmm. They wanted to know whether or not how much the Tasmanian government put into the film and mm -hmm. they've put in a freedom of information uh, request on the, the funding proposal for the film. And of course they have. <laughs> just, yeah, really been a bit difficult. But anyway, we've... Uh, you mentioned, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned the police there uh, because uh, there's this very interesting scene in Wild Things that involved... Uh, a conversation between a man who chained himself to the tractor and a police officer who lives in the local area. And it was quite a, if you, if you read between the lines, it was quite a beautiful scene because the police officer seemed to be uh, just as concerned uh, and as passionate about his home and this area as the activist was, but obviously he couldn't chain himself to the tractor as well. And uh, it got me wondering if there were any ever, uh, if there were ever any conversations with people of authority off camera who shared their support for, for the activists, uh, because surely they're not all heartless hotheads. One of the things with uh, the police in Tasmania is that they will not comment on camera at all about their views and, uh, 
And that is increasingly the case where there's enormous media scrutiny around, you know, public officials that often it's only the people in the media department that can make comments. So we couldn't get any of those police to really share their views apart from just filming that sort of observational sequence, which shows that the young policeman there has lived in the area for many, many years. He obviously loves the area, loves the beauty of the area. And you could see that, you know, he he was really, um, I think, quite empathetic with the views of the protesters in the sense that he also really valued the environment. Mm. And they're just doing a job, you know. Their job is to um, ensure that there's no trouble. Their job is to, you know, obviously the, the, the timber companies have a, have a contract to be able to go in and log those areas. So mm. the timber companies basically engage the police to come yes. in and do their dirty work. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I think, I think in talking to the protesters, they will often have conversations with workers going into a workplace, mm. you know, who will understand their point of view. But the workers, you know, they need a job and yes. so they're... I mean, often they're not thinking perhaps about the bigger picture. They're just doing their job, which is Mm. laying pipes for what happens to be a big mega coal mine. Yes. And their job is simply to deliver those pipes. They're Mm. not really thinking about the long term. Mm. Certainly all of the protesting that people have been doing to stop the Adani coal mine from going ahead, it has had a really strong impact. And... I think well over 80 companies have decided not to collaborate with the building of that mine. And those companies <laughs> range from construction companies to insurance companies, and, and also lots of banks have yes. decided not to loan the Adani, the Adani um, group money to build that mine. So protesting works, activism yes. works. Yes. People often say, oh, what's the point in going and demonstrating? Well, I think there's a big point because if you don't, if you just sit back and sit on your couch and throw tomatoes at the news reports, you know, nothing will change. And I suppose that's the big takeaway message, I believe, in the film is that it's really important to get active. You know, as as Bob Brown says, don't get depressed, get active. Yes. You know, get out there, join a group, um, start start doing something and make a difference because each and every one of us has the capacity to make a difference. Mm -hmm. I mean, just um, a few weeks ago before Christmas, there was logging going on in the Eastern Tiers in Tasmania, which is, um, there's an area which is the swift parrot, habitat for the swift parrot, which is an endangered bird. And you may very well say, oh, so what, it's just a bird. But, um, you know, I mean, every creature is a really important part of of the ecosystem. Mm. And, you know, there's at the moment there is um, just extinctions happening everywhere at a really rapid rate. And it's one of the scariest things about climate change is, Mm. you know, with climate change, I mean, one of the the biggest impacts of climate change is just this rapid rise in extinctions of, Mm. of species because, As areas get hotter um, or drier, um, then the creatures that live in those areas, they have to move. They can't survive. And some of them, there's nowhere to go. There's no habitat for them to go to. And, um, you know, I think of, you know, some of the listeners may have 
maybe familiar with the work of David Attenborough, but you know, he's he's done a number of documentaries recently around just this extraordinary rise in extinctions mm. that's happening across the planet. And um, you know, okay, you can people, you know, often people say, oh, I don't want to think about it because it's just too depressing, but. You have to think about it. You, you have to think, think about it. it and work out, okay, what can we do? What can yeah. we do? How can we mobilise to make sure that that we do protect wild places, we do protect habitat? Um, and I suppose wild things is very much about the people that have decided, okay, I'm going to do something. Mm. I'm going to go to the front line and make my voice heard. Yes. Um, I'm going to join a group and make my voice heard. Yeah. Um, I have two more questions here. Uh, I'm not sure if it has anything to do with the film not being attached to a broadcaster, but Wild Things, it's a very one-way street. There's no commentary from the other side. Did you ever want to reach out to Adani and similar corporations and invite them to have their say for the sake of balance or was that off the cards? Um, I suppose I very much wanted to make a film about frontline activism. I didn't, it wasn't going to be a news report. It wasn't going to be a documentary that showed both sides of the issue. Mm. Um, I wanted to make a film about what it's like to be a frontline activist and the yes. reasons why people are doing that. So it, it's a kind of very immersive documentary. It puts you into those blockades yeah. and it makes you think about what it's like to be to be in a blockade and to be facing um, opposition. And, you know, that was, that was the intention of the film, was to make it for the people who are really committed to environmental issues rather than necessarily making it for people that are sceptical about, yes. about climate change or the environment. Yeah. Sally, thank you very much for joining us. No worries, man. I hope there's something there and... There, there really will be. It's been a great pleasure chatting with you and congratulations on the film. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Cinema Australia podcast. You can keep up to date with all the latest Australian film news, reviews, features and interviews at cinemaaustralia.com.au.